Hi, everyone. It's Mark Penziner. It is noon. I appreciate you taking the time to join us for another one of our biweekly market updates. Today, I'm going to be joined by Tara thompson Popernick. She's the Director of Research here at Bernstein in the Wealth Strategies Group. Tara, thanks for joining. Absolutely. Thanks, Mark. So we're going to try and move the technology forward a bit this time from where we were in the past. So if there are any technical glitches in advance, we will apologize. We've got now two people remotely, both Tara and myself. We've got the slides on the screen. And then we're going to interject some comments from some of the portfolio managers, both on the stock and bond side. So if in, any, in those transitions we get jumbled, but I apologize, we're, we're trying to do these remote experiences from iPads all across the state. So give us a little bit of leeway with that, but I, I think this will work well. So I always start with where are we today? And I think we really are in the new normal, both in markets and, and probably in our lives, there has been some discussion about quarantine fatigue. And, and I think you start to feel that whatever your current state of being is, whether it's work, whether it's home with family, this is kind of where we're gonna be or have been for some time now. And, and I use that to frame how markets have been, I would say for the better part of two weeks. And, and in one way, what has been consistent throughout this whole COVID-19 period is, and we've talked about this before, volatility. So we've had volatility throughout since mid-February when the coronavirus came into um, play. That has not changed. Look at markets up 200 points today. I don't think that means they'll definitely be up 200 at the close. You seem to see wild swings at the end of every close of every day. And so if you look on this chart, it's a different framing of the chart I showed you two weeks ago the range of 1% moves in the S&P. These are the days where you see, whoa, markets are up 300, markets were down 500. They're the days you really take notice. Look at the global financial crisis of 2008, 2009. It jumps off the screen, but the period we've been in just through first quarter of 2020 looks very much like the financial crisis. And remember, that's only three months of data. And the one I think we all feel the most acutely is the downside. So this has been a period of extreme volatility in markets, but, but also I think it feels like from time to time in, in markets, we're, we're playing some form of whack-a-mole, whether it's one day the treasury market, one day discussion about the muni market. And, and last week, the story without a doubt, this is a chart that uh, Amanda pulled from Bloomberg was oil prices. So this is uh, the day when oil prices went negative on April 20th. Oil was trading at around $20 a barrel, which was already a, a very historic low point. And then you probably heard the news, oil actually traded negative in the futures markets down $20 a barrel. A question we've gotten is, how could that be? How could oil be trading negative? Um, they were literally paying you to take the oil, right? So I, I was having a conversation over dinner with a friend who's not in financial markets. And I said, basically, you got to take a barrel of oil and $20. Not only did you get the $20, but you got the oil. The question was, what were you going to do with it? Where were you going to store it? So the question became, how does that happen? And I think this is instructive broadly to think about how financial instruments work and the complications that come, can come around them if you're not fully versed about the things you own. 
And I have seen from prospective clients and investors outside of Bernstein over the last few months, portfolios of financial instruments, things that just seemed like mutual funds or MLPs with high yield that are down much more than people ever imagined they could be because they didn't understand what was actually going on inside the strategy. So, so here's what happened in the oil markets, right? People own oil and energy ETFs. Think of that as almost an, it is literally an exchange traded fund, but it's a way to get exposure to the price of oil or energy. Those funds though are never going to use the oil. They're not an airline company. They're, they're not a car company, right? So, so that oil, they're really just financially trading it, betting on what the future price will or won't be. They're never going to use it for any real purpose. So they can never take delivery, right? They say, I'm willing to buy oil for $20 a barrel three months from now. But three months from now, they're never going to take that oil because they have nowhere to use or store it. And so the day before those contracts expire, they have to sell because they can't take delivery of a physical commodity, right? It, you can take all the shares of Apple you want. You don't have to store them. But now you physically have to take thousands of barrels of oil. That, that's going to be a problem if you live in an apartment in New York City. So all of a sudden, you have this flood of selling because all of these exchange-traded funds say, I can't take the oil. I've got to sell it. Everyone's looking to sell oil. It's not clear who the buyer is because there's a glut of supply and there's very little demand when you have no travel and no airlines in the sky. And so all of a sudden, people are saying, oh, my God, I, 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 in my document, in my offering document, I can't take the oil. I've got to sell it at any price. Fine, take it, and I'll give you $20 to take the contract. I don't think people understood that was the, the structure in place. And that's what created the, the, frankly, bizarre pricing the first time oil had ever traded negative since I think the futures market started in, in 1983. This is another way to see it. The 52-week range of oil, $40, and then you see here, literally off a cliff. What I think we will think about five, 10 years from now, when we look at the financial and economic and health crisis of coronavirus is you will see a number of charts where the scale doesn't make sense. Whether it's the oil chart, whether it's some of the high yield bond charts I'll show you later today, or the unemployment numbers, the scale of the charts, even when you think about the dot-com crisis, the 2008-2009 Great Recession, they don't, they pale in comparison to the, what I would call blunt force trauma of what has happened in markets and the economy over the last few months. So where are we now? I bring back the ugly scorecard I've been using prior. And, and I would say now is right where we were two weeks ago when we did our last call. Again, just to take people through this chart who haven't seen it before, I'm breaking the world into the healthcare outcomes and the policy response from both US and, and foreign governments. In February and March, as we started to learn the scope of the coronavirus and the potential um, impact where people thought potentially millions of deaths globally and hundreds of thousands in the US, all the health news was terrible. We hadn't got to the point of policy response. And so markets were in free fall. As we transitioned to late March, early April, the health data was no better. But fiscal and monetary policy, which we've talked about in the past, came to support markets. And we started to put in, at least at that point, a bottom. And now where are we? There's some optimism that health data may be getting better, right? The, the curves have flattened, that, that maybe some of the economy will start to open up. And the policy responses have continued, 
Remember last week in the Payroll Protection Act, which is, which is designed to support small businesses and their employees, another $321 billion was added on that side. So we've had policy response, potentially more. The healthcare, I would still score as a minus, not nearly as negative as it was potentially when the height of the fear was. And so I think where we are now is, is the term I used earlier, the new normal. We're going to be range bound, in, in my opinion, for the foreseeable future until something changes on either the policy side, I don't know that there'll be anything material there, or on the healthcare side. And, and somewhere in between that is, is the opening up of the economy. That's, that's both policy and health. So let's put that as a combination of the two. The reason I say that is while we're in this new normal, we've been doing these calls every two weeks and as weird as it to think that this is the state of being today, I, I think I'm likely to slow down the pace of these webinars in, until we have something that moves us on this chart and, and then now looks different. That could be tomorrow. It might be three weeks from now. But while we're in this high volatility stage, whack-a-mole, whether it's oil, high yield, um, uni bonds, but ultimately range bound and no new news from both a policy or healthcare perspective, I think we're gonna say that you know, we're, we're sort of stuck where we are for the time being. That's not bad, right? It's better than things getting worse, but I also think that means that the new news we'll have for you will be, will be less frequent in, in, in all candor. So with that said, let me turn it over to Tara. Tara runs the research department in the Wealth Strategies Group. She's done a lot of work with her team about what are some of the planning opportunities. So, so in the beginning of the first five, 10 minutes of discussion, I talked about kind of where we are. Now I want to turn that to from both an investment perspective, which I'll touch on in a moment, and the planning side. If I'm in this environment, what are the thoughtful things I can do to, to help myself from a tax estate planning perspective? and from an investment opportunity perspective. So, so Tara, take people through where we are now. Sure, so I, I just wanna expound a little bit on, on what you talked about from a policy perspective. Um, you know, the CARES Act, which was passed on March 27th, um, created the PPP, the Paycheck Protection Program. Um, that program was topped up again last week. Um, this is now nearly two and a half billion dollars of um, direct stimulus into the economy uh, from the federal government. So. There's a whole lot um, that's underneath here, but I just want to go over a couple of things. Um, number one, all filing deadlines for federal taxes have been pushed to July 15th. Um, number two, um, and, and also many state deadlines have gone along with that. For example, New York always follows the federal filing deadline, so um, New York's taxes are also due July 15th. That lets people who owe tax hold on to liquidity for a little bit longer um, in the hopes that you know, the economy can start to reopen sometime between now and then. Uh, unemployment insurance has been topped up nationwide so that uh, folks who are currently filing for unemployment will get an extra $600 um, in, in weekly benefits to bringing the average weekly benefit to somewhere between $900 and $1,000 a week, which is much higher than unemployment benefits typically run. Um, Recovery rebates, these are direct stimulus checks to individuals. Now, you know, I know mo most of our clients don't qualify for these, but there may be other people in your life who will be receiving checks. Uh, the thresholds for these um, are, you know, single filers with uh, income below 75,000, married filers with income below 150,000. Um, and in addition to these amounts, uh, there's a, um, per child additional recovery rebate that, that is going out to, to folks with kids. 
So um, look on the business owner and nonprofit side, there's really three federal loan programs that business owners can take advantage of. Um, the PPP, as I mentioned before, was the one that was created by the CARES Act, but there's um, also funding, additional funding that's been approved for the um, Small Business Administration Economic Injury Disaster Loan Program. And then the, fed, the feds have created the Main Street Lending Program. Now the Main Street Lending Program is a little uh, more restrictive on its requirements than the Paycheck Protection Program that, that ran out of money and then was replenished um, last week, but um, could provide businesses some additional liquidity. And um, most people are just hoping to get through this crisis and, and be able to get out on the other side of it. Um, additionally, there's some payroll tax deferral um, that businesses can defer payroll tax payments into um, 2021 and 2022. And then um, the feds have approved additional business interest deductions and um, net operating loss carrybacks to try to free up some additional liquidity from tax money. I will note on that point that state tax law may not conform. So definitely consult your tax advisor if you're in a position where you want to try to take advantage um, of those things. On the retirement account front, the biggest headline out of the CARES Act was that the required minimum distributions are completely waived for 2020, so completely eliminated. This includes both traditional IRAs and beneficiary IRAs. Um, so, so really this is um, a, a big point for folks who don't wanna recognize that income now, especially in a down market. Um, I should note that if you already took your required minimum distribution and you wanna put it back into the account, um, the IRS has clarified that you can do this with withdrawals, withdrawals that occurred after February 1st, and that deadline has been extended to July 15th. They have not said anything about what happens if I took a distribution in January yet. Um, and if you took, we're taking monthly distributions or multiple distributions, only one distribution can be rolled over. Now we're hoping the IRS comes out with some additional guidance that would sort of make it more fair for those folks who took their distributions in January or took multiple payments um, for part of their distribution so far this year, but we haven't heard anything yet. We will definitely keep you posted um, if we learn anything. Um, the CARES Act also created this um, additional withdrawal ability called a coronavirus-related withdrawals. Basically, and, and this is a pretty broad category, if you've been either affected by the virus health-wise, or someone in your immediate family has, or you experienced poor economic consequences as a result of the virus, meaning you had to close your business, um, you suffered a furlough or a layoff from your company, um, you, your income has been reduced, you can take up to $100,000 without any early withdrawal penalty from a um, either a qualified plan or an IRA. Now, on the qualified plan side, the qualified plan has to approve that they're going to allow these. And so each individual employer is basically going through and reading and figuring out whether or not they want to do this. But on the IRA side, you definitely um, can, can take this right away. There's no mandatory withholding from these um, withdrawals and they can be repaid to your retirement account over the next three years. So if this is an opportunity where you might need some additional cash, th this could be an option for you. Um, if you cannot repay the funds, they, you can spread the income over a three-year period from 2020 to 2022. Um, so, so just you know, a way to access cash for, for folks who need it. 
Now, finally, on the opportunity side, thinking about making lemons out of lemonade, this sort of confluence of events, low valuations, and um, the waiver of RFDs have caused some people to think, you know, should I convert part of my IRA to a Roth IRA? Um, and so that, that is a you know, conversation we're having. We're actually releasing a paper about Roth IRAs later this week. Um, one other major headline from the CARES Act was on charitable giving. And um, that is, Mark, if you could advance the slide just a little bit. Yeah. That is that um, the CARES Act for the year 2020 has made cash gifts to charities 100% um, deductible against AGI. So under normal circumstances, you can only deduct your charitable gifts up to 60% of your AGI if, if that gift is made in cash and 30% of your AGI if that gift is made in stock. Um, but now if you're giving cash gifts directly to charities under the CARES Act for this year, you can deduct up to 100% um, of that gift uh, against your AGI. So we're getting a lot of questions. You know, I want to give, I want to respond to this crisis or to one of the appeals that I've, I've received. What's the best way to give? Well, our answer is always, it depends, right? For some of you, you still are holding appreciated stock in your portfolio. That's probably the best um, option for you, at least up to that 30% of AGI threshold. Um, beyond that, giving cash, if you, if you want a larger deduction, is a potential. Now, even though folks are not required to take distributions from their IRAs this year, the qualified charitable, charitable distribution still exists. And for um, some people who have either very large IRAs or um, otherwise that's the, that's the most convenient asset for them to give, taking that qualified charitable distribution might still be um, advantageous. And that can be up to $100,000. So it really depends on your situation. And so I, I know Mark and Amanda are, are available to, to talk that through. My team is available as well. So, so we can hop on the phone with you and, and think through what the assets are and how much you want to give and where you want to give it. Um, finally, on the um, subject of making lemons out of lemonade, this is one of the most incredible opportunities that we have seen for wealth transfer. If you were thinking about doing some estate planning, shifting some things off of your balance sheet and to family um, or, or other individuals that you care about. There are always two key factors in a good environment for wealth transfer. What are interest rates and um, what are the valuations of the assets? And of the two, I will say valuation is a more important factor. So what valuation opportunities do we have today? Um, first and foremost, and I would act very quickly if what you're holding and want to transfer are marketable securities. We've seen um, the market rebra rebound dramatically from its lowest point at the end of March. And um, that, that window of opportunity may continue to close if we continue to get market rebounds. Uh, we're, you know, we're up again today. So, so that should be your first stop if you're thinking about making a transfer. Um, another opportunity may be alternative investments. Those take a little bit longer to reprice than say something that trades on a daily basis, but um, to the extent you get a receive evaluation either from end of Q1 statements or end of Q2 statements that is much lower than maybe it was at the end of 2019, 
transferring some of those alternative investments to um, family members could be an opportunity for a low valuation. Then finally, um, closely held business in real estate. And again, because those um, don't necessarily mark to market on a regular basis, you will need to get a full evaluation of a closely held business. You would need to get an appraisal of a piece of privately held real estate in order to transfer it to someone. But we, you know, we do expect that some of those valuations will be off as well. Now, what vehicles? You know, we talk, and my team writes a lot about all the things that are listed here. Um, but every single one of these things, either the GRAT, which is the grantor retained annuity trust, um, or an interfamily loan to a, a trust for the benefit of some either children or grandchildren, all of these play on what the prevailing interest rate is and the rates that the IRS determines you must use for all of these vehicles are based on treasury yields. And so for May, um, the 75-20 rate, which is the rate that a GRAT has to use to determine how much of the assets contributed are potentially a gift and how much are return of principal um, to the grantor, that interest rate is the lowest it's ever been. And if you look on um, the right side of this page, we're showing the history from the dawn of the 75-28 all the way to, to May 2020. In May 2020, that rate is 80 basis points, 0.8%. And so that makes right now a huge opportunity um, to be able to fund one of these trusts. All of the assets that you put into, if you say you're doing a GRAT, you could put $100 into the GRAT. Um, that GRAT just has to outperform the 0.8% threshold in order for every other dollar it earns to be transferred um, to your beneficiaries. So huge opportunity for wealth transfer, you know, definitely get in touch with um, your estate planning professionals if that's something uh, that you wanna consider. We can also help uh, build a financial model to show you the impact of, of some of these strategies on um, your long-term wealth and your family's wealth. So if you're thinking about estate planning, or maybe you think I had an estate bill, my assets are down, maybe now I don't have an estate bill. The reality is we believe markets are going to rebound in value. And, and to Tyro's point, taking advantage of and locking in a very low interest rate today from a estate planning perspective could be really advantageous. So let me tell you about the investment playbook for clients at this time. It, it is about, and Tyra's team does a lot of this, making sure you have enough core capital, the amount you need for whatever it is your core um, lifestyle and expenses are. And then anything you need above that, the hopes and dreams money, the second business money, the wealth transfer opportunity to the next generation charity, that's the surplus capital. And from an investment perspective, especially in a period of distress, how we would think about investing those is, is really quite different. But from an opportunity side, I think a very simple way to break the world is into five buckets. I am, I'm grossly oversimplifying, but I think you have to ask yourself the question or ask Amanda and myself, how do I define opportunity? Because there are gonna be investors out there who have been sitting on significant amounts of cash and they're risk averse. So the opportunity to pick up a half or 1% tax-free versus zero at the bank with very limited downside is an opportunity for them, right? A high quality municipal bond manager looks at yields today in the two, two and a half percent range and finds that opportunistic. For some of you, that's not attractive. 
And for others, the opportunity is going to be in distressed investments, whether they be private or public securities, where you're willing to give up liquidity and try and make well into the teens returns. So on this chart, I break the world into cash, high quality bonds, typically municipals, but in your IRA, it's high credit quality things like treasuries and double and triple A corporates, money that you go to bed at night comfortable with. Think of that as your risk mitigating portfolio. High yield bonds is not a category we talk enough about. We'll talk about that in a second. Those, those are bonds, right? That you have loaned money to a government or a municipality, but you know you're taking some risk there and for that you're gonna wanna get paid. Equity is the stock market and, and distress in this environment could be anything from mortgages to private loans, parts of the market where, or private equity where, not only are you gonna go in and, and take on overt risk, but you're likely gonna lock your money up for a period of time. And for that, you're gonna want really outsized returns. And so what's the downside return today, the time horizon and liquidity for these five broad categories? Because this may help you think about how you should be allocating new capital or just taking opportunities in a way that is appropriate for the type of risk you want to take. So in the cash money market space today, I would argue there's no downside, right? We don't believe the US government is defaulting. The return is at its best about half a percent today. And, and that could be tax-free as well. Now, these numbers are highly sensitive, right? If you call me tomorrow and I tell you it's 0.3 or it's 0.6 or 0.7, market rates move quite quickly. But if you're in an investment that's paying you zero at your, at your bank and you want safety of principle but want to do a little bit better than that, there are ways to get there in the money market space. That's for money that you need regularly available. I'm calling that time horizon less than a year. If you're planning on buying a home, spending for an upgrade, whatever that might be, you, you need the money for some reason in the next 12 months, I don't think you should have that money in stock or bond markets regardless of how attractive the opportunity might be. Because as we always talk about, sometimes markets move against you. And so if your time frame less than a year and you need daily liquidity, you should be in cash money markets. We can help you think about how to squeeze out a little bit of return there. In the high quality bond space, uh, munis are down about two to 3% for the year as of today. Depends on if you look New York, California, the maturity. Um, but, but we would say the downside today is very low given that those risks are already priced into the market. Now, the return today is low in the context of absolute return. Now in the muni space, our forecast over the next three years is a return in the mid twos, two and a half percent or so. That's low relative to what equity return is, but it's a lot better than the return forecast we had six or 12 months ago when yields were even lower. If you're going to put money into high quality bonds, in our view, you should have a 12 to 24 month time horizon, you have full liquidity, right? You can get money out of that market fairly quickly. In the high yield bond space, whether it be in lower rated municipal or corporate issuers, we think the downside today is average again, because that market has already sold off. So this isn't about what's the risk permanently, it's, it's what's the risk if I were owning that stuff and buying it today. The return expectation is much higher than normal. I, I will have Gershon Distenfeld in a second talk about that. But one of the ways we think about it is how much extra compensation am I getting for owning a high yield bond versus a treasury where I have no credit risk? You've been getting in excess of 1,000 or 10% above treasury today. 
for taking on that excess corporate risk. We think that's interesting, but those markets can still go against you. I said the downside today is average, so we think you need to have a three to five year time horizon. In the stock market, I think we would all argue until that earlier chart with the healthcare is behind us, the downside today is still high. Although I would argue, and you've heard me say this at all points in time, there's always the, the, the potential for a 30% downside in the market for any or all reason at all. So you always have real risk in the, in the equity market. The return today, and I'll have Tara talk about this at the end, we think is more attractive because buying the market today was more attractive than obviously it was three or six months ago, right? That's a reflection of the price. But we don't think you should be day trading this market. If you're gonna now put money into equity, it may or may not be the best entry point. Clearly March 31 would have been better. And I'm not saying we're not gonna retest those lows, but if you're gonna own equity, you really shouldn't think you need this money for at least three to five years. If you move into the distressed space where you go into and buy parts of the either equity market or private markets, mortgages, private loans that have already gone through radical falls in price, you have to be really prepared and have, in our view, a real research edge, and we think we do, to buy and understand those types of securities. For taking that risk, we think the return potential is significant. In many cases, the returns we're talking are north of 15, close to 20%. But your ability to get your money out of those strategies is going to be highly limited. In other words, if you need the money, you're not going to be able to get it back because of the terms of some of those investments. And so you've got to have at least five years and a really high threshold for, frankly, pain to try and get that type of return. And I would just say to you across the board, whether it's in the, the cash and money market space, and I'm just going to slide through this quickly, or the municipal bond space, which I think is more popular, we do have a range of investment options where we can match your willingness to take credit risk, your willingness to take interest rate risk, which is often defined as um, duration, short, limited, or intermediate, and your willingness or, or, or want for yield to find the right solution that matches you. For instance, in the short-term municipal bond space, yields today are about 1.5%. You're only taking on less than two years of investment duration, so limited interest rate risk, and your credit quality is better than AA. If you're willing to own municipal high income, which I touched on before, now that yield goes to four to 5%, but your credit quality comes down a bunch. So the point is we can customize a portfolio using all of these tools to get you to the yield and risk tolerance that you're looking for. And, and what we would say is the opportunity is really interesting today because there has been a real push in the muni market for, I, I wouldn't say push, there's been a lack of liquidity in the muni market and that lack of liquidity ha has enabled us to take advantage of some really interesting mispricings in the market, both from both a, a credit and interest rate perspective. Let me pivot for a second now to high yield corporate. Again, I said earlier on, it's not an area we talk a ton about, but, but the way to think about it is how much yield am I getting? And that's a pretty good predictor of what my return will be over the next three to four years. And so if you compare the light green on the chart here that I'm zooming in on, the yield, the additional compensation you got for high, owning high yield bonds went to over 10%, which is a thousand basis points on this chart, virtually overnight. For comparison's sake, the mustard colored line is the global financial crisis. 
to get to a comparable yield, that took over a year. So this market got hurt quickly, but became very attractive as well. So let me pivot to Gershon to give you his thoughts on how the muni market is today. Well, at the end of the day, the, the difference between fixed income and most other asset classes is that we actually invest in mathematical instruments. They're contracts, essentially. You know, we talk about, you know, what, what's a share of Apple worth, right? In theory, it should be worth the present value of future cash flows. But in reality, it's worth whatever the market says it's worth at a given day, where the intersection of supply and demand. What's a barrel of oil worth, right? Today, it's, you know, 22 dollars a barrel because that's where it trades in the marketplace. What's what is the euro trade? It trades wherever supply and demand is. That's true in the short term with a bond as well, but in the long term, there's really only two outcomes. Either the issuer of the bond, whether it's a corporation or a country or the obligation in a securitized deal, either it makes good on its obligation or it doesn't. We call that a default. You know, and that's why by the way in 2009 you know, most bonds, particularly in the corporate area, came back a lot faster than equities because at some point people realized, well, there's no reason that these companies shouldn't be able to make good on their obligations. So why should a bond trade at 50 cents in a dollar when the company is going to have no problem repaying its debt? So, you know, important to note that even though returns in the quarter were down considerably, you know, our portfolio didn't really take any losses in the quarter. Bonds weren't defaulting. So as long as we get this economy going again, and it's Certainly how and when is, is a question, but you know, the Fed and, and governments around the world seem willing and able to bridge the gap until we do. We think a lot of this stuff or most of it is going to recover and, is, and these prices is gonna pay us handsomely to do that. So we feel really, really good about the return potential going forward and one can argue. So let me just stop Gershon there. Um, I'm gonna note and I'm gonna play another one of these before the longer interview with Gershon and the equity portfolio manager in a minute are, are all available on our website. They can be tricky to find. So if you want to get that, that whole interview, just again, email myself, Amanda or Samra, and, and we can send you how uh, the, the full interview is and, and how they're positioning their portfolios today. Just to put in context, the portfolio that I'm talking about, our, our high income portfolio has been through these types of crises before. If you look at how it did in the global credit crisis, in the early stages, in 2008 to 2009, it was down 25%, much like the index. In the recovery period, in their view, because of their research insight, their multi-sector approach, they were able to capitalize on mispricings in the market. They were up 65%. Now, to be fair, the index was up 44 but when you're up 65 ahead of 44, they were the number one performing fund in the market. By the way, same story in the Greek and Euro crisis. Um, I don't think people remember that as acutely, but this is where people were worried that Greece would default, the Euro would fall apart. The fund was down 5%, a little bit more than its peer group, and then had a, a, an amazing recovery out of that. They tend to be um, early into the, the mispricing of the market, and, and that can hurt their, their performance in the early stages. And then they way make up for that, for being in the right spot at the right time and, and the willingness to thoughtfully take that risk. That's been very much the story so far. So again, if you say, I, I'm interested in taking on risk, I don't know that I wanna do it in the stock market or I already have enough stock exposure. This is a place where we think returns are really interesting for an investor who wants equity-like returns 
but with a different profile. Now, for those that are thinking about how can I take advantage in the equity markets, I don't want to own high yield. I want to try and get return. I don't want to own something that's so esoteric uh, as, as private debt or mortgages or energy. Just want to own stocks because I think it's a really interesting time to be a stock picker. Our concentrated growth portfolio may be interesting to you because they're focused on high quality growth companies. It's a concentrated portfolio of typically between 15 and 20 stocks. And they're looking for companies with consistent revenue and earnings growth potential. Jim Tierney's run this portfolio for decades. His team has an average tenure of about 22 years. I will tell you, their performance, and I'm just flipping through it on the screen, has been phenomenal over time versus both their peer group and versus benchmark. But let me give you uh, an insight into how he's positioning his portfolio today when I uh, bring up his comments. Likewise, Abbott Labs is a big position of ours, but Abbott held in unbelievably well, and many of you hear in the daily briefings about their testing kit. So Abbott did its job, but as the market was really getting hit, something that protected like they should have, it was time to rotate a little bit of money out of Abbott into something that got hit much more, and I mentioned IQVIA earlier, and in fact, we sold some Abbott and moved the proceeds into IQVIA. Uh, thereby participating in a big bounce back in IQVIA when that happened, when the market recovered. In terms of sector positioning overall in the portfolio, would you say that the composition of the portfolio has changed? I would say we've become a little bit less defensive and we've gone on offense because the defensive companies by and large did their jobs and the offensive companies got hit much more. When the business model is not changed, we're more than happy to buy these great businesses at a discount, which is what we were able to do in late March. So let me stop there with Jim. As I said, it's a concentrated portfolio on, on this slide, although the names change and, and you can hear from those very brief comments from a larger interview. He, he's a portfolio manager, right? He's trading positions as he sees opportunities in the market on the right you can see the top 10 holdings as of the end of the quarter. Those may not be the exact 10 that they are today, but it gives you a feel for the types of companies he's owning. And, and what all of our portfolio managers would tell you across the various strategies is that in this environment, it's a really interesting time to pick stock and, and not own the index. Because as we've talked about in the past, if you own the index, not only do you own the Microsofts and the MasterCards and the Abbott Laboratories, but you own the airlines and you own the cruise ships and you own the hospitality companies. And in the index, you may not want exposure to all of those. You can pick and choose the types of companies when you're, when you're managing an individual portfolio that you believe can be the winners going forward from here. And, and when you have such dispersion in the world today between who's winning and who's losing, right? There's clearly a difference between Amazon and Costco's pass forward from here versus Royal Caribbean and Delta's. We think that's an interesting time to leverage research and, and run portfolios. The last part on the distressed um, opportunities is for, for regulatory reasons, I really can't get in much more to that. But, but if you find yourself as an investor who says, I can part with some capital for three, four, five, six, seven years, I'm gonna have no need for that. I'm willing to take with a small chunk of my wealth, very distinct investment opportunities for the hope of outsized return 
call me about that because we think there are a handful of opportunities where th that is the case. I, I, I would think about it in, in the most vanilla way, like, like Warren Buffett, when he would say the time to be buying is when there's blood in the water. Through this period of time, there, there is that dislocation. And if we can be thoughtful about where the opportunities are in the water, we can get some really outsized returns that, that frankly weren't there 12 months ago. So with uh, that, I'm going to stop. We, we did get a few questions that Amanda has pushed forward to me. So the, the first is for Tara, and then there's one my way. Tara, um, your model gets updated all the time. We've done a lot of financial modeling for, for clients. I guess the two-part question that it seems like this is touching on is, are our forecasts changing? And prior to this, did our forecasts think about um, downside like we've seen in the coronavirus? Sure. So, so on the, the second part of that question, I can say absolutely yes. You know, depending on your asset allocation, this was well within the range. This downturn was well within the range um, that we would see um, for, you know, a, a across the board, whether you're all equities or, or all and, and something that we plan for in our models by really trying to show you what's the likelihood of a, a peak to trough downturn of something like 20%. Um, so we were well within the bands there. Uh, on, this, on the second question is we sort of on a go forward basis, what are we doing? We are updating um, the model right now with end of Q1 economic data and the preliminary results, as you might imagine, show that because bond yields have fallen um, so quickly downward, the go forward outlook over the next 10 years for bonds is pretty low, especially relative um, to what we would expect under a normal environment. Um, but the flip side of that is that our expectations for equities, in particular the equity risk premium, is much higher than we would expect in a normal environment. So there, you know, as you mentioned earlier, there is an upside um, to capture potentially on, on an equity allocation, provided that you have the time uh, to withstand that volatility that an equity allocation might bring you. Um, the, the other key variable that goes into our forecast on how much you can spend over the long run is inflation. And, and that has not moved much yet. Um, but it remains to be seen. We're keeping an eye on that for next quarter as we see what um, the crisis does to aggregate demand, um, you know, not just demand for energy or, or a few other smaller sectors, um, but, but what it does in aggregate. Thanks, Tara. The, the other question I got is, is there anything that um, would change or has changed in the last two weeks since we last talked that would have um, me think about investment advice or asset allocation differently? And, and the answer to that is no. The, the one thing that I would continue to stress is really try and take your own temperature about how you felt in the depths of the downturn in March. The, the reason I say that is, and I'm not going to go through the old charts, but, but if during the periods of the most stress, you thought, I really want to sell, I can't take any more pain. Now, hopefully we've done a good job of buffering the portfolio with the right asset allocation so that you didn't get to that point. But, but if you did, it's a much better time today with markets up 20 plus percent from their lows to, to have an honest conversation with yourself and with Amanda and I to say, look, I, I was really stressed at the latter point of March and I was getting ready to go to cash or sell half my equity. 
I didn't do it. I was almost ready to call and then the market rebounded and I got through it. I would say to you, it is not impossible that we retest those lows. And oh, by the way, maybe unrelated to coronavirus three or four years from now, there's another downturn for any reason and we're down 30%. And so what I would say is if you found that you were near that point, I would rather have the conversation with you now and figure out how to adjust the asset allocation, not as a distress seller today. Yes, we're not at the all time highs, but we're through the distress point at this moment so that if we go back and test the lows, you can weather that storm better. And if we get past the lows and are further down, you're protected from it, both from a behavioral finance perspective, meaning you don't become a distressed seller, and from an economic perspective. So, so no difference than two weeks ago, other than just saying, you know, now that maybe everyone feels a little bit more breathing room, if you recognized you were under financial stress, not mathematically, but emotionally back then, let's talk about it now so that we don't go through that then. So those are the only questions we've got. Tara, I appreciate you taking the time and doing this, so thanks. And for those who listened, thank you. Um, obviously, most important, stay safe. If you need anything, reach out. Um, all of these and the prior ones are, are getting put up on our podcast or on my podcast on Mark to Market, so, so you can get those there. And uh, most important, take care of each other. And if you need us, we're here for you. Thanks again for your time.